Today, I am thrilled to host Ithaca College's ninth president, Dr. Shirley Collado. Shirley's journey from being an aspiring first-generation college student to becoming the first Dominican-American president of a four-year institution is an amazing story. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here we go. It is a privilege to welcome Dr. Shirley Collado, the president of Ithaca College to today's conversation. Welcome, Dr. Collado. Thank you, Brent. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. When, when I read about your background, I was so excited to meet you because I think that your journey is so reflective of the opportunity and the access that can be created by philanthropic work. And that is the work that our audience today has dedicated their professional uh, path to. And so to set a little bit of context, I'm not gonna tell your story, but I want you to imagine in your head right now, 10 year old Shirley, who was that person? <laughs> tell me about her and tell me about her journey to the president role that you have today. Thanks, Brent. That's a very generous question to start with, especially since you're you're talking to a psychologist. So I always appreciate the power of a pathway and story. Um, to to be very brief about a, a very rich and amazing um, uh, pathway in life and career that's taken many turns. Um, you know, at ten, I'm a Brooklyn girl. I born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, um, with immigrant parents, firstborn child. Um, I am the big sister to two brothers that I raised, and I was raised by Dominican parents who were they themselves growing up in New York after meeting there. Um, and I lived largely in uh, an immigrant community that was um, very working class, um, low income, and I grew up in a traditional Catholic household. And my dream was to be a high school teacher, a social worker. Um, I, uh, I was in a community where most people stayed locally and I thought I might go to Brooklyn College. That was my dream school as part of the great city University of New York and that I would continue working like I did all through high school, middle school to pay for college and to be able to afford it. I had no reality of leaving home of going away that was unheard of in my traditional family. And it was through philanthropy. It was through this incredible idea that came through the Posse Foundation with Vanderbilt University as the very first school to take a huge leap of faith on a program that had no track record. And I got a leadership merit scholarship to go with four other kids on a Greyhound bus from New York City on a 26 hour bus trip with our five moms because we all couldn't afford to go down to Nashville with our parents. And they were there for, with us for a few hours and they got back on that bus and headed back home. And this was before college tours for me. This is before the internet, uh, really sight unseen. I had never been further south than Washington DC. And the Can rest ask, of that, yeah. I was just gonna ask at what point in your journey, in your childhood, with that backdrop, my, my understanding is your father was a cab driver. Uh, your mother, I think, worked in uh, a, a laundromat. Is that right? And uh, a you she worked in, in a, factory. a factory with her and her mother. And at what point 
in that journey, did you even start to aspire for wanting to be a teacher, wanting to be a social worker? Because even that aspiration alone um, probably was uncommon. Um, and I also just want to share that I'm so inspired by your journey uh, in part because uh, I am a first generation college student. I'm the oldest of, yeah. of three children. I had uh, tremendous access uh, to, to college by way of uh, philanthropic support from Brown University. Uh, and the common thread here is that philanthropy created access and now we're having a conversation uh, over video today. And it's just so clear that without that really formative moment for you and for me, there's zero chance this conversation would happen. So oftentimes we talk about $50 billion a year being raised uh, to support higher education philanthropy, but underneath all of that is Shirley and Brent, and it's just really neat to see that manifest um, today. So where in your journey did you even aspire to want to be the teacher, the social worker, uh, and then where did things start to pivot to hear about something like Posse, to start to dream about Vanderbilt, which I imagine is not something when you were 12 years old, you were thinking about a lot, uh, uh, you know, based on what you've shared so far. No, well, so the power of what you're talking about is right on, Brent. I mean, you've been able to uh, actualize the vision of this incredible organization and you have listeners that this this work that you're doing is so important and you're right when you think about access to something so much bigger than who you ever could imagine you would be in the world and that that access is followed with a great sense of privilege and responsibility to pay it forward um it's pretty incredible so where did i access that you know i was an old soul i was a parentified child you know i had enormous responsibilities at a very young age I did things and multitasked and took care of money and knew how to balance a checkbook and was bilingual, bicultural at a very early age. And, you know, I actually don't wish that for most kids. It's a very common theme for immigrant children when your parents are transitioning. I gained enormous skills that would later equip me for the kind of role that I occupy today. But at the same time, didn't have the opportunity of play and childlike adventures, right? That most kids should absolutely have access to. I was a grown up kid. And so it was seeing people doing the things that I got excited about that got me to thinking. I knew at a very young age that education and healthcare were critical to advancing humanity, to transforming lives. And I was really tuned in with an activist grandmother uh, that community was something that needed to be taken very seriously, that you don't do anything in life by yourself. And so that's really stayed with me. I didn't know it at the time that I would understand how philanthropy plays into paying it forward in community because it just wasn't, you know, part of my reality with parents that, you know, a cab driver and a, far, and a factory worker as parents barely making it. But um, it stayed with me for a long time. And even that bus ride, to Vanderbilt University, where I now serve proudly as a trustee, um, was this kind of image, if you will, that stayed with me my whole life. I didn't go to college on that bus by myself. I went with four other kids. And then there were many that followed because the Posse Foundation and Vanderbilt and other institutions that followed that took a chance on something that was a vision that could have collective impact. Um, so that's how it all started. 
And, and for me, I'm thinking back a little bit now of just, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but the culture shock that I experienced as a first generation college student at a place like Brown, I can reflect on it now. But when you think about getting off that bus and some of those early um, days, weeks, those formative moments where um, you just, it, it, I'm just curious, like what memories, good or bad, really stand out during what had to be a somewhat overwhelming, but hopefully exciting period? It was really exciting, but incredibly overwhelming and scary. I don't think that I would have pursued the journey that I took at Vanderbilt and stayed there if I did not feel a sense of connection to those four other scholars that I vowed to finish college with. I had never been beyond Washington, D.C. on a field trip for my high school. Um, I had only traveled from New York to the Dominican Republic, the great country that my parents come from. The rest was work and really doing your part in school and in your community. Vanderbilt was at the time a very Southern school, a much more regional school than it is, a predominantly white institution, a very wealthy institution in the state of Tennessee when it was still very black and white. It was not international and global in the way that Nashville is now. So I was walking into, like many first-generation college students, not only so much unknowns, but there was very little to reflect my experience and affirm it. And so um, it was scary. The academics were tough, but I was a good student. It was more of the cultural transition. And when you're a child of immigrants taking care of two young children, your family counts on you financially. They count on you in terms of responsibility. Um, like many first-gen children of immigrants, um, there was a part of me that also carried tremendous homesickness and guilt. I was so far away from my family. I couldn't just get on an airplane during breaks and go home, you know, and my family was still depending on me, even though I had a full scholarship. So I was really navigating a bizarre ecosystem that ended up having many blessings, but was very formative for me because there were some very hard moments. Uh, during my trajectory there. And I'm eternally grateful to Vanderbilt. It's why I serve and give the way that I do now. Um, so the complexity of that, of loving a place and at the same time being afraid and overwhelmed by it, I think is very familiar to many students. You know, I know that I have a great story, but I always remind people, there's so many more Shirley's out there. You know, there's so many amazing kids out there and we just have to find them and, uh, and really build that pathway and make sure that our institutions are there to actually support them and make these places more affirming of those experiences. When you think about some of the most positive experiences though, because no doubt there were challenges and it was overwhelming, but clearly you have a deep passion for Vanderbilt and it propelled you to get even more access for the next opportunity and the next opportunity. So when you think about you know, getting on that bus for the 26-hour ride was definitely an inflection point in your life. Um, what were some of the inflection points at Vanderbilt where you started to think, wow, this is really difficult culturally, but I'm starting to feel like I'm hitting my groove. I'm starting to feel like um, this is the place for me. Yeah, there were many moments. You know, I, I'm a very proud Commodore. And uh, I have the way that I decided to give back 
uh, with time, with talent and treasure. As an alumni board member, now in my second term of being a trustee on the board of trust, but also in ways that I didn't imagine ever being able to give back. It was because of those, it was the moments where, you know, I was working alongside uh, an amazing psychologist that opened my spirit up to what it would mean to get a PhD in clinical psychology from Duke University. You know, it was sitting in the office of Keith Davies, the dean uh, at the time, who was helping me work through some really hard stuff around my own student leadership abilities and, you know, giving me the chance. It was sitting on the floor of the community partnership house and organizing, you know, and pushing against the boundaries of what the university was doing, but in a way that was constructive and spirited, but reflective of my deep gratitude for the institution. It was, and I didn't know it at the time, Brent, but those interactions later would inform my thinking around actually going into higher education as my career. Um, that's not what I was planning to do. I was at the Peabody School of Education. I double majored in psychology, in arts and sciences. Um, Peabody was a remarkable place to make me feel. It was like a liberal arts college within the university and with remarkable faculty who are still in my life today. And those points and people would be the things that would fuel me later to think, maybe I actually want to do those things from the inside of an institution. So I want to know more about that part of the journey and really at what point you started to think I might be able to I might be able to be a college president. I mean that is not an overnight revelation I don't think. It, it it's an evolution as you start to get exposure to different roles and leadership and then you start to imagine yourself maybe aspiring for that. Tell me about that part of the journey. And if there was a moment when you really said, I'm going to go for it, what was that like? <laughs> well, so this is a uh, full disclosure. This was not in the plan. I did not have a careerist track for saying, I'm going to be this, then I'll be a dean, then I'll be a VP, then I'll eventually become a college president. In fact, I think some of the most bold, interesting, dynamic, creative presidents of colleges and universities are people who absolutely did not go into this with a plan. Uh, they weren't in it to get some big lofty title. They were following the work that mattered to them. And someone told them along the way, you know, you should think about this. Or they felt so driven by an institution, its mission, its purpose, that they could see themselves perhaps scale up on that leadership track. So for me, it was, I have followed, and I think it's really important for listeners to take this into account. I have no idea what you're thinking in terms of your career track or where you are on that track. But if you follow the work that you're most passionate about, and you're open to doing the kinds of things that people start seeing you, in you as potential, and dare I say, if you resist to stay in a traditional box, because that's been very critical for my career, um, is you'll follow the work and it will take you to what you're called to do. And that's what happened with me, Brent. You know, I did not know when I was thinking about being a faculty member or doing policy work on issues related to mental health, that I would be called literally on the phone to put my name in the hat, to run and grow nationally 
the Posse Foundation, the very program that changed my life. I made a very uh, different kind of move. I decided to go and run and grow a national nonprofit outside of the academy, which is what I thought I was going to be training to do as a psychologist. That whole trajectory introduced my ability to learn how to do strategic planning, how to raise money in my career very early in ways that if I had pursued a traditional track, I couldn't have done. I opened cities. I, I did feasibility studies. I learned about public and private education systems. And I work with not one college, but hundreds. And so that changed the landscape of everything. And along the way, I decided, you know what, I kind of want to do the systemic change work around access and affordability from the inside of an institution. But it has to be a really special place that's ready. And I went to Middlebury. I picked up my bags from my hometown in New York City after being in the South for years and went to rural Vermont in a town of 5,000 people. And I worked for a bold president and I was focused on the work of improving the student experience. That's really what I wanted to do. And I chose Vermont, I chose Middlebury. And every step of the way, there was this moment where someone would say, so you should try this, you should do this. And I take on responsibilities that weren't on my portfolio, that weren't in the plan, but I cared so much about what students were doing and I wanted to grow and I wanted to be challenged. I just followed the work. And that propelled me into, you know, I've been at Lafayette College. I, after Middlebury, right before Ithaca College, went into the public higher ed sector for the first time ever. I'd never been at a public university. And I wanted to scale up the work that I had done at liberal arts colleges. And I went to Rutgers University, Newark in Newark, New Jersey, not far from my hometown. And I worked under, again, another bold chancellor and leader and uh, really learned a lot about myself. And it was then really at that moment where it became clear to me after sitting in all these meetings, after doing all these things with so many great presidents, that perhaps I could be in that seat but it was really people asking me to do it. It wasn't in my plan. And I feel like you, anytime you do a PhD, you have to zoom way in, in a very specific subject matter. You then had leadership roles that allowed you to round out your portfolio of experience. And then you took that on this journey from liberal arts to public higher education. But so many of the the themes that you've pursued in your life around multicultural access and affairs, around uh, mental health, around uh, equity and inclusion, and diversity. It's like all of that, as we sit here in the middle of 2020, all of these things that you've put years into, years ago, years before they were on the front page of all of the headlines, it's like all of that is front and center right now. And you happen to be in a leadership role now where you have that opportunity to affect change from the inside. And I, I would love just kind of your reflection on that in that so many of those specific themes and trends that you've invested your time to develop expertise and had genuine passion for are more front and center at this moment than maybe ever before in history. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I'll, I'll start by saying 
with that comes tremendous responsibility. I picked a role from which I thought I could create and mobilize the greatest level of collective impact. That, um, so it wasn't about pursuing this role, this job. It is a vehicle for the kind of social change that I deeply care about. And I happen to think Ithaca College is incredibly well poised for that kind of commitment. And I wanted to go to a place, this is another thing that I think about for your listeners. It's always been very important for me to go to an institution, an organization that really allows me to be fully who I am. And so uh, the people who know me, who know my work and have pursued my leadership know that uh, I'm not going to places to continue to solidify status quo. Disruption is healthy. And um, honoring legacy and tradition and history is important. And at the same time, revitalizing and reimagining that is, is critically important. So, you know, to your point, Brett, and so interesting how awful and sad it is that for decades, these issues that are front and center right now have operated at the margins of many organizations. They've been add-ons. They've been things to deal with, laws to follow. And then we moved into the landscape of climate and inclusion and equity. And now we are at this pressure point that is demanding of us that the very things that we have protected to keep this amazing thing that we do in higher ed, right, strong and, and, and historical, need to be dramatically interrupted and reimagined while staying true to the mission of why our institutions came to be in the first place. This is true in the public sector and the private sector. It's true if in you're in the South or the North or East or West. Uh, this is something we all have to be paying attention to. For, so for me, I would underscore whether you're an advancement officer or a president or a CFO or a board member, we need to intentionally make sure that these issues actually come from the core of what we do rather than from the peripheries and sitting at the margins. That's actually harder work to do than just adding on something extra like a special program or a recruitment officer or a chief diversity officer. It is really looking at everything that we do. And I think that is a fundamental role that I play as president when I think about how do we look at this whole landscape? So we all have a stake in the future and we all have the ability to feel like we can see ourselves in this conversation so that we can all fully participate together in a great academic community. And that's really, really fundamental for me. And you have done that in the way that you have built your leadership team at Ithaca College. I would love your perspective on how intentional you have been in that regard. And equally important, we need to acknowledge that higher education in general and advancement specifically has a long way to go in this regard. Advancement partners like Evertrue have a long way to go in this regard. And I love your point about how do we bring it from the core as opposed to create a special initiative or a council or whatever it may be. But that means in a certain regard, unwinding 50 years or 60 years of relationships and how boards have been constructed and people who are on the boards that are reflective of maybe what 
the student body looked like 50 or 60 years ago, who love the place, who feel just as passionate about it as, as you do about Vanderbilt and I do at Brown, how do you say to those people, we've got to get at this from the core? And that means you might have to step away, even though you love this place. And, and I think that's a lot of the tension of like, where do we start right now? Um, and, and how have you approached that at Ithaca College, balancing tradition and legacy with a really um, strong set of beliefs around what equity and inclusion and the next chapter should look like for higher education? Yeah. That's such a rich question, Brett, and I'm so glad that at Evertrue you're thinking about how important it is to be very honest about that. And I think when we have these hard conversations about where we've stumbled or where we've missed, there's a tendency for people to start feeling either guilty or threatened or outside of the conversation. And I would challenge everyone who feels that way to really, really ask the question, what role am I playing how am I contributing to this? And what do I need to learn to create the shift? And so let me first say clearly, Ithaca College does not have this perfectly right. We have a long way to go like many institutions. And uh, we have a history here that we're very proud of. And then there are things that we could really learn from. You know, uh, our campus before I arrived was already going through some very hard things related to campus climate when there were protests happening na nationally, as you know, on the heels of Mizzou. And not a Vanderbilt, not a Brown, not an Ithaca is immune to that. That's real stuff. And why is that relevant now? Because students are rising up and I want to say it's not just students of color. It's not just first generation college students students from all walks of life as we're seeing now in our country in our nation grappling with issues of race and violence in america people from all walks of life care about this issue and so um i think it's an important and beautiful thing right now that we're facing this and need to know it's not it's not just the historically black colleges or the His hispanic serving institutions no actually the future of america the future of your very clients in philanthropy and engagement, the future leaders of this country are going to come from all walks of life. And so if we position that and we look at that from a market perspective and also from what it means to be truly committed to public good and issues of equity, we can't afford then to hang on to all the different ways that we've been before. You know, it's like when I think about a college campus and the history of higher ed, you know, it's really, and whether we think about Brown or Vanderbilt or Ithaca, just as an example, what we fundamentally have done is we decided for a whole host of reasons to start inviting students from different backgrounds to our campus. And it's like, Brent, if I invited you to my house and, and I said to you, you know, you can come to my house and, and then bring all your friends and bring all these interesting people who might have different backgrounds than me. But, you know, when you come to my house, I want you to be exactly like me and I don't want you to change anything. You know, you might have different tastes in food. You might want the curtains a certain way. You want this. But if you're going to live in this house, it has to be exactly the way I want it to be and I'm comfortable with. And what we're doing in college now is we're asking students, right? They're adding and they're changing who we are. They're not compromising our history and past. They're adding to it. They're strengthening it. 
And so with that, there's a responsibility that we need things in our curriculum and our faculty and staff on the board and on the senior leadership teams to affirm that experience. And uh, that's really important. And I think in advancement and philanthropy in particular, there's so many people that we traditionally have missed and not seen because they don't check certain boxes that we determine to be worthy of our time and to be selected, to be valuable assets to our institutions. And those things have to change. We've overlooked women that way. We've overlooked people of color in that way. And there are people like me, for instance, coming through the path who would not see themselves as a chief philanthropist, right? Because they don't see that image of themselves and no one's asking members of their community to take that walk with them. And that's what I think we need to start unpacking is where do we see value? Who's getting noticed? Who's getting the president's time? I mean, one of the things that I've done at Ithaca and it's required more time, but there are people who I want to be in front of that in the traditional advancement space, I would be advised, no, you don't want to do that. That's not like the, that's not valuable to the president's time. I think that's completely not a great way to think about it. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, nope, that person could actually be all these other things that we're not even seeing yet. And so if you don't have that lens, you miss so much. And that's why it's important as a president to surround yourself with people who think about this in all kinds of ways. Tell me about the evolution of your relationship with advancement. You started on the academic track, but you were a beneficiary of philanthropy via Posse. Uh, and then just how you started to engage with your chief advancement counterparts at the institutions you worked with. But now you really are the chief fundraiser, uh, again, in a chief philanthropy role as president of Ithaca College. And so what is your journey, the good, the tensions with philanthropy been um, over the years? So it's, it's super interesting. I guess I'll, I'll start by saying that a lot of people make the assumption, especially if you come from a more affluent background, that poor people don't know or understand philanthropy. And actually, I'll start with that being as a huge misunderstanding, because I grew up in a community where we shared our resources. We raised money at our church. We went out and we did collections for clothing and any little bit of a dollar here, 50 cents there that someone could contribute to help someone transitioning it back into the country. And the reason I state that is that I wouldn't have understood that as a child as philanthropy, but I understood early on that giving matters and giving matters at any capacity of your humanity, you can give and you can add value to a community. I didn't understand it that way then, but it came to life as I started understanding how my scholarship was being funded and all these other things were going on and, and happening. And so we miss so many people who are not of means traditionally that actually understand this world really, really well. And so, so that's one. I would, I would argue I got introduced to philanthropy very early. Um, I was going and knocking on doors with my grandmother, asking people for help you know, at a young age uh, for my community, nonprofits, and my church. And so that all kind of naturally came to me. It was really posse that unpacked the, my knowledge of that I actually um, 
I knew how to tell stories. I, I, I knew the importance of being authentic. Um, I understood that Posse was in my heart, that it changed my life. And when I talked to people about it, it was really about cultivating that connection. And so once I got comfortable with the ask and with developing that relationship, I saw it, I saw the thread, I saw the capacity of it. So what that ended up allowing me to do at both Middlebury and Lafayette was I was not a chief philanthropy officer and I was not the president, but both of my presidents put me in the role of helping them raise money. I was given those responsibilities in my role and that was great. So for any VPs in the mix, you know, or, you know, if you're working with presidents, please encourage them to have other leaders on a campus and a community learn how to raise money. Um, because for me, that just built on everything I had learned at Posse, I started learning about in the academy. And I would say the hard part, Brent, is um, sometimes people make assumptions about you when you come from a different background that doesn't fit what they believe the the college should be. I represent, I'm the first person of color to lead Ithaca. I'm not the first woman. I'm a first generation college student. Um, I am very public about my commitment to community and equity, but I'm about full participation. I'm about all voices having a stake. And so I'm talking to fundraisers who have very different backgrounds than I do. Maybe politically are on a completely different side of an issue than I am. But that commitment and that connection, our love for the institution is a common thing. And I, so, I do think one of the hard parts is when you're put in a box and an alum or a donor makes assumptions about your belief system and who you are and what you care about. And you just have to kind of get past that in, in cultivating a real relationship. Without going down you know, a negative path, but, but I do wanna have an honest conversation about this. Do you have ex specific examples where you just feel like people have jumped to conclusions and yeah. it really either hurts or hurts the relationship? I mean, what what is an example of that? And how do you navigate those uncomfortable conversations? It seems like you are adept at uh, handling anything that is thrown at you, but I wonder if any of those specific situations stand out. Oh yeah, listen, this is an important way to underscore you know, and we're talking and experiencing uh, emboldened racism in our country now, you could be a college president in my seat, in the highest seat of an institution and have people completely dismiss you, make judgments about you, disrespect you in ways that I think, you know, a lot of women and people of color in these roles um, experience all the time. But a, a good example is, you know, I came in during a time where the college was really struggling and we had lots of protests going on on campus. It was when nationally, you know, there was stuff in the New York Times about snowflakes on college campuses, right? Students who can't handle hard stuff, who want to censor everything. And I had people because they understood, they kind of saw my background, understood my story, who just assumed immediately that I was going to be like the diversity girl president that all I cared about was far left principles and all this stuff that some donors and some alums, frankly, I think at many institutions, not just IC, take issue with. Um, you know, whether we're talking about DACA students or LGBTQ rights on our campuses, 
um, scholarships for particular students. Um, and so I have been met with a set of assumptions of, I must really believe those things and those are the only things that I care about. And I actually find it very refreshing when a donor and alum is willing to engage me directly about their fear and their worry, as opposed to completely dismissing it and not giving me an opportunity to engage on the hard stuff. And I would say too, I think it's important as a core value. I think it's okay. There's certain donations and certain people that are not aligned with the values of our institutions. And it's okay to walk away from a gift and a relationship if you feel that you have done everything you can to be who you truly are for that institution. Um, but that's the kind of stuff. And earlier in my career, when I, you know, I have a PhD, when I was a VP and EVP, if I walked in the room with a white male, people would not understand that I was the dean and I was the vice president, not the person next to me. And that happens to me now sometimes as president. Um, if people haven't looked me up or they don't know, and then they ask me what I do and I say, well, I'm the president. I either get, wow, this is amazing. Or they go, you're the president? <laughs> so I go, yes, I'm the person you're here to see. Um, so that gets tiring. That gets old, but it's a reality. No matter what, now how high and amazing the role is. And I think it's hard for people to understand that. Tell me about, well, they haven't looked you up. They're missing out. And if they do look you up, I hope they find this interview and they, they can better uh, understand um, what, what makes you tick and what gets you um, inspired to continue to make an impact. But um, one, I, I think, question that I have for you as it relates to storytelling and as it relates to what you learned from Posse and as you think about not just Ithaca College, but all the universities you've worked with, I think one of the the challenges that higher ed is facing is how do you have a simple story that really articulates the impact, that tells the story of the Shirley's, the Brent's, so many people listening today who are working in the fundraising sector because we believe, we have experienced the transformative power of higher education. Yet the headlines don't reflect that. They reflect student loan crisis and tuition raises and all of the negative. And I think these stories get lost. Yet organizations like Posse, I think do an incredible job of bringing it down to a big problem, but it's about the individual. It's about that kid that gets on the bus for 26 hours and gets off and her life is transformed. It's about the kid that grows up at the farm in Iowa, gets to go to Brown, whose life is transformed that kind of storytelling really works for places like Posse, but it feels like it can be hard to make it that specific down to the individual student impact level when it's wrapped into 400 years of history and tradition um, that we have in the higher ed sector. So how do you think about telling that story in a way that inspires donors as part of a large enterprise that has many needs financially, not all of which are as emotional or as easy to connect with as that one student journey uh, like yours? Yeah, that's such a good question. Well, first of all, you have to believe in the story. The story has to be very real and connected to the person telling it. 
And sometimes we tell stories of others, right? When we're talking about our institutions, that needs to be something that you deeply get and feel and is inside of you. And I think we also need to be open to who's telling the story, who's telling my story. And I think we have to be sensitive about that. You know, who are you bringing along on a trip? You know, who's with you? And let it be an unlikely suspect. Let it be someone else other than what people usually would expect. Um, the simplicity of that, I think, can be very powerful. It's more inclusive. It takes time. And it doesn't feel like a cell. It feels very real. And you know this, Brandon. I'm sure many people listening in know this. But it's also the story that's going to connect people have to see themselves in a story. So, so even though, for instance, I talk about, you know, I'm first gen, I, 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 I'm Dominican American. There are all these things about me uh, as a president. I feel very, very responsible for all students seeing themselves in me. It's important that they see me, that they understand what I represent, but understand that I'm a multifaceted person and they can all see themselves in me. And so that's very genuine to me, you know, even if a student has had a very different life trajectory, um, you know, can really say, yeah, that's my president. And what, but the reason that I mention that is, I think that's a really powerful piece of, people only do that when they know that you see them clearly you see who they are and they're part of a community, they're part of a whole. So I could be sitting in front of a donor from the class of 1954 versus the class of 2017. And both of those people should feel that the story of Ithaca College and what we're doing and what we're being called to do is compelling to them, is real to them, is timely to them. And I think that's, that's the magic in you know, and what we do. But if you're faking it till you make it, if you're selling a bag of goods you don't believe in, and if you are bending to a donor around what they want and not what the institutional issues are, it's it's the wrong direction in my opinion. And I, I think the last piece is if you're gonna tell a story and you're gonna get to know someone, you gotta be willing to talk about the hard stuff. So if you know what that narrative is about higher ed or your institution or a moment, and maybe the story's about me, you know, or you. You got to be willing to lean in with someone and say, so let's talk about that across our humanity. Yeah, this is what I know. Let's have a conversation about that. And that's one of the funnest things I think people in advancement do. It's hard, but you, you're developing these relationships with people who are so different from you. And you wouldn't normally just pick them out as friends. And hopefully they become friends and they become colleagues. But that 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 has stayed with me the most powerful leaders for me have been people who aren't necessarily from the same cloth as me but they see me clearly they affirm that and they create a space that lets me see myself in them even if i have nothing in common with them and i think that comes with time and confidence and living a full life and not staying in a traditional box you know so if you get asked to do stuff and if you're interested in doing something different, ask. The same way that we ask for a check or money, it's kind of like, yep, I wanna sign on for that. Not just what people see in philanthropy and engagement. And I would share that with you know, listeners um, who, who are thinking about a career in advancement. 
Well, let's talk about that as a concluding thought, because we have over a thousand people participating today. They are uh, advancement professionals for the most part at at colleges and, and, and high schools around the country. And when you think about, you know, now you're in a position, right? You told us about that this was not your stated career path, but along the way, somebody said, hey, you should consider this. And then you did. And here we are. You're now the person who gets to pick out other people and start to say, hey, have you ever considered this? And so what I want to know is, what are the characteristics, the backgrounds, the skills, if they're not in the box or they are in the box, when you've now started to say to other people, hey, you, you should consider aspiring to go down this path. What comes to mind? Well, that's a a great uh, closing uh, question. You know, I paying it forward and identifying emerging leaders and mentoring people and making time for them is incredibly important to me. People have done that for me repeatedly. And even now, you know, even now in my career, I have people that I count on, that I go to, that I ask for advice. And so who are going to be my truth tellers. You asked me earlier about building my team. When I think about people who I say, hey, you, you need to think about this. It's intentionally identifying people who um, are collaborative by nature, are not afraid to be who they really are, um, think in innovative ways, are great storytellers, right? Are not turf builders, you know, are not in the work to build an empire. They're in the work for a public mission and a real cause. Um, People who don't take themselves so seriously, but they take this work very seriously. You know, and I think we have to be intentional about always asking when you and I are having our meetings with our Ithaca and Evertrue teams, who's not at the table, who's missing and intentionally saying, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the most talented people who fall in this category of expertise and background. I want to be surrounded by truth tellers. I do not want to be yes to death. I want people with opinions. I want people who are driven, and but driven for the sake of what's best for humanity and students, not driven for ambition for self. And that's the kind of thing that motivates me. So um, I always love when I run into someone who's not afraid, you know, to ask me, how did I end up doing what I'm doing? And they tell me what they're doing. And um, I love hiring people who aren't willing to just stay in their lane. You know, that they, they want to learn about all aspects of the institution, not just their area of specialty. They want to serve and they think of the big picture thing, not just what their area of expertise is. Uh, that's really, really important to me. And we need different kinds of people. When you look at presidents gather, you look at boards, you know, you look at alumni, I constantly ask myself, so who are we failing to see in these spaces And every time we're doing that, we're missing an opportunity to see another lens and another thing that I know is going to make make better decisions. So I'm very proud of the fact that I've developed a leadership team that is incredibly diverse in lived experience, but also people who've worked across sectors of the academy, have been in private and public spaces, um, aren't just coming from traditional higher ed roles. Um, I love mixing it up that way, too. So I I hope that's helpful, but no matter how busy I get or you get, we got to pick up the phone when people need us 
And when you see talent out there, encourage it, inspire it, and uh, give people things to do that can help them grow. Dr. Collado, I was really excited to meet you and I'm even more excited having had this conversation and I'm really glad that there are at least a thousand more people in the higher ed sector who uh, will look you up and will know your story and won't mistake someone else to be the president of Ithaca College because <laughs> that's you. Uh, congratulations on all that you've achieved. Best wishes as you uh, lead Ithaca through this challenging period. Uh, and I just can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you, Brett. It's been an honor and a great conversation. Thank you for asking me such wonderful questions. And I wish you all the best. Congrats on everything you've achieved with Evertrue. And I'm happy to help whenever I can. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.